0: This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com.
1: You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. Now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore.
0: Hey, it's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Every once in a while, I like to pull one of my favorite shows out of the archives and bring it back into the feed. This one is from early 2020, a conversation I had with my friend Francis Tapon, whose travel resume is insane. This guy has hiked all three Of the long distance trails in the States. He has been traveling for five years through all 54 African countries recently. And prior to all that, he spent many years traveling around Europe and Eastern Europe specifically, wrote an awesome book about it. And we got to do a deep dive on what he refers to as the hidden Europe, some of the places that most people don't go that you as a traveler may want to check out. So I know you're going to love this conversation. It's a great one. Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Francis. Oops. Restaurant. Sopping arcade. Spa, Fitness center. <laughs> Garage. We are recording after we got the technical uh, aspects of this podcast out of the way. And normally I have a, like a long drawn out intro here, Francis, but I can't do it, man. Your, your travel resume is ridiculous. <laughs> like I would just be reading it off and then people would just be like, all right, when are you going to get to the interview? And then an hour would go by or whatever, and then I'd have to just give up. So I decided, <laughs> we're on Skype here, I decided to just go to the store and get a beer and crack this beer which i'm going to do right now and by the way at what time is it in the morning <laughs> no it's 6 p.m i'm in norway so oh, that's not, right. not okay. that so bad i've beer. had my whole day okay. i've been taking care of my kids all day and everything i'm ready for beer no i'm doing that because you're like as i read through all the things you've done i'm like this is the kind of guy i'd want to like kick back and have a beer with and hear some stories so uh <laughs> anyway francis welcome to the zero to travel podcast my friend
1: Thank you so much, Jason. Mm-hmm. Honored to be here.
0: I'm glad you reached out. And by the way, if you want to check out Francis's work as we get into this, uh, you can just go to his website, francistapon.com, T A P O N. First of all, on your website, you say wander learn with Francis Tapon. So I wanted to just get your definition of wander learn because I think really this it's this philosophy that you have that you carry with you everywhere and in, in your work and everything like that. We're going to talk about your books and everything like that. But
1: what do you mean by wander learn? When you travel, you can learn a lot about everything, not just the world, but a lot about yourself, your relationship with somebody else. If you travel with somebody else or in a group, your dynamics travel is one of the best ways to get educated. It's a wonderful university and it's really amazing. I can say that because I went to Harvard business school. I went to a really good school all my life. And yet I think that I've learned much more about the world, about myself and about other people through travel. So, I encourage people to just get out there and and that's the other thing is like I do some crazy shit, but I don't necessarily believe that everybody should do crazy shit. For some people they just need to walk around their block or go to the next uh, city that's nearby that they've never visited. So, it, you don't have to do crazy shit. You just have to wander a little bit, keep your eyes and, and mind open and then you'll you'll discover stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, I get that feeling even though I've traveled around a bit and stuff, if I just go on a walking adventure where I live or something like that, I get that feeling again. Are you off the road now or are you still traveling? I have no idea where you're at. I see just a nondescript background, so you could be anywhere (laughs) in the world.
1: That's right. Um, I'm in my Al-Qaeda cave here in uh, Mogadishu, no. (laughs) Um, But no, um, where I am is uh, I'm in California in the Bay Area. And I am writing my book about Africa. So I'm in the hermit mode, which I'm not very good at, by the way. But yeah, so that's what I got to do. I've got to finish this book sometime this year. I'm about 25% done. And that's my project. All right. Well, why don't you so at some point you got
0: to do why it. don't you tell everybody what you're trying to summarize in this book, which is insane.
1: <laughs> it's a five years of overland travel to all 54 African countries.
0: And you never left the continent, right?
1: Correct. I spent, I got in there in 2013. I finally left in 2018, never left the continent during that whole trip. Tried to climb the tallest mountain of all 54 African countries, climbed, I I managed to do it in 50 of the 54. And uh, I just had a car, drove around, picked up 3,000 hitchhikers, got to learn about the Africans, spent about five weeks on average in each African country.
0: Uh, Everybody that's listening, earmark this, because well, there's going to be a part two to this podcast. <laughs> and it's going to be all about that trip um, as okay. uh, Francis works through some of his books or this book in particular. So once once you kind of get your hermit mode down and locked in and you've done some more writing and this book's coming out, we're going to have you back because, I mean, that's that's a whole adventure in itself. But you have many adventures before that that we need to cover in this show. So everybody, I just wanted everybody to earmark that.
1: By the way, sorry to interrupt, but Jason, I'm shooting for May 25th, 2020. May 25th, twenty five. The reason for that date is that that is what's called Africa Day. And Africa Day is a day that celebrates, it would be the 60th anniversary of Africa Day. It was the year of 1960 when a lot of African countries became independent. And so it was the year of Africa, they called it. And it was May 25th, and then they formed the African Union and all this other good stuff. So I'm trying to aim the book for that anniversary. It's kind of, I think, poignant. So that's when I hope to have the book out. We'll see if I can actually make it.
0: I love that you're not just choosing an arbitrary date, that there's some significance behind that, which is a beautiful thing. And also it helps to have a deadline and a a book like that, right? I mean, <laughs> it's yes, just, yes. And yeah. you, you totally call it because one of the books we, we're going to talk about today is *The Hidden Europe: What Eastern Europeans Can Teach Us*. And you were like, you sent it to me. You were so kind because I was like, hey, can I get a copy of the book so I can check it out? Because I always like to read the books before I interview people. And you're like. Dude, yeah, yeah, I can give it to you, but if you uh, if you can read it, it's like 700 pages, uh, go for it. And <laughs> you were totally right, shamefully. my uh, I, I, I couldn't blame it on my two kids, but no, I couldn't get through the whole book, but I'm excited to hear some of the stories from from the horse's mouth, as they say. All right, so did you grow up in the Bay Area? Is that where you were born?
1: Yes, I was born in San Francisco, California, and my mom is from Chile, my father is French.
0: Yeah, tell me about that. How did they meet?
1: They met because of a slow elevator. I mean, it sounds kind of romantic and sexy, but actually it's not the case. It wasn't that they were in the elevator. What happened was that um, my dad was trying to meet this uh, friend of his, and uh, they were staying in a communal building in San Francisco. And my, the Mexican girl that my dad was going to see, and they were going to go out on a double date, that Mexican girl saw my mom cross the lobby and said, hey, Lucia, Come join us. There's this nice French guy. We can all, all five of us can go out together on a, like a group date. And uh, my mom went to the elevator and she was pushing the button and the elevator just wasn't coming. And so that's when the Mexican girl finally said, Listen, the elevator's not coming. It's a sign. You got to come with us. Just come. She's like, Fine, fuck it. I'll come. Cause she was like, not in the mood, but she did go. <laughs> that's, yeah, I mean, it's those little moments that you wonder, all
0: right, yeah, that never happened. Yeah. Yeah. I think
1: about that a lot, Jason, you know, like think about it in all the travels, like all the times like, you went to, let's say India. And if you had not stayed a, an extra 10 minutes at this cafe, you wouldn't have met this other person who then did this and that, and that. it's just amazing to, to think about the butterfly effect.
0: Absolutely. And uh, I mean, how far back can you go? Right. it's like, if when I was in grade school, right. if I didn't have to wait in line behind that right. guy at the right. drinking <laughs> right. fountain, I never would have met this person at this cafe. I mean, it's, it is crazy, though. And I think about this kind of stuff often. And, uh, yeah. yeah, when you reflect on it, I mean, in the moment, they seem ins- insignificant. But then later on, you realize, oh, well, if that didn't happen, this whole thread of my life wouldn't have happened. But, um, right. And,
1: but here's the thing, Jason. I think that when you travel, especially beyond your comfort zone— you're going to set off more of those inflection points, those little kinks in the road. Those things are more likely to happen than if you're sitting on your ass doing jack shit, right? So if you get out of your comfort zone and travel, you're going to find more of those kind of, wow, those bends in the road, and it's going to take your life into so many unexpected and usually fun directions. Well, what
0: did it take to get you out of your comfort zone or was there never a comfort zone? When do you feel like you first pushed out of your comfort zone, travel-related?
1: Well, because, like I mentioned, my both my parents were not born in the United States. And so from as an infant, I was already traveling to Chile, which was a big deal back then. It was a long distance and all that stuff. Nowadays, no big deal. But um, So I think I was already out of my comfort zone in that sense. So I never felt out of my comfort But I would say that the big inflection point was when I hiked the Appalachian Trail. Because when I hiked the Appalachian Trail, that's when I took a long trip. It was about four months. And hiked those 2000 miles 3000 kilometers and uh, I realized this is what I love to do this my passion is to just go out there and you know wander travel the world and that's when I really realized that this is what I need to do this my mission in life.
0: When did you first hear about the Appalachian Trail.
1: It must have been 2000, no, sorry, 1999 or so. So I got into backpacking relatively late. I was like 29 years old or 28 years old when I first went on a, like a overnight, uh, backpacking trip, actually just camping trip. Really. I got totally hooked. And my girlfriend at the time and I, we just hiked around the Bay area and we would do these overnight trips, weekend trips, three day trips. And then we didn't went to Yosemite, did a four day trip there. And then we just got hooked. And then all of a sudden, I said, you know, this is really fun. It's fun to hike a hundred miles in a weekend or like a four day weekend, should I say. Um, but how could I do like an even longer trail? And so I started investigating and of course the Appalachian Trail came on the radar and I was like, oh shit, let's do that. And so that's what we did. Yeah, and, and then that changed my life. That's completely changed my life. And that's what my first book, Hike Your Own Hike is all based on. Did you do that solo that trip? No, I went in with her. She, she and I, we did together. And then, I and then after that, I did the Pacific Crest Trail. And then I did the only trip I long distance trail that I did is the Continental Divide Trail. When I hiked from Mexico to Canada, up the Rocky Mountains, and back. And that was about seven months. It was uh, two hundred and one days. It was about five thousand six hundred uh, miles, about nine thousand kilometers, or something. like that. it was a long. <laughs> it was a long trip, and that I did solo.
0: I have a question about that. Uh, I'm just wondering when, were you the first person to do that or something? Yes, yes, yeah, I
1: was. All right,
0: so was that the intention when you set out? You're like, I want to be the first person to do that. Yeah, it
1: wasn't like an accident, like I wing it, and I was like, hey, you know what? I've got some extra time on my hand. I might (laughs) as well walk back.
0: (laughs) I thought, I figured that much.
1: Because what it is, Jason, is that you gotta, to do that feat, you have to go at such a fast pace going up so that you have enough time on the return that you don't get stuck in the winter and slogging through the Rocky Mountains in the snow. So that's the idea. So you have to you have to commit yourself from the get-go.
0: I guess you went what first from Mexico to Canada and then back down? Correct.
1: Correct. Okay, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah. how did
0: you feel when you got to the end and you're like I mean, it's just, it just must have been kind of a surreal moment, right? Like it's different when you're driving to the I don't know, to the market or your friend's house or whatever. You're like, "Well, all right, my time's up. I guess I best I better turn around, you know, and go back." But like you're yeah. like, "No, all right, I just lived through this crazy adventure that took however many months. And I I guess I got to turn around and go back and do it again. (laughs) It is right. right, right. I can't imagine that
1: moment. Yeah, but the thing is, is that it's even better than a lot of people imagine because when I got to Canada and I got to the turnaround point and I touched, there's a monument there. It's right at the Canadian-US border in Glacier National Park. And you touch that monument, you're officially, for me, it was, for most people, it's the end of the trail, but for me, it was the halfway point. But I, I had taken the hard way up. So the Continental Divide Trail is different than the Pacific Crest Trail and the, and the Appalachian Trail. The Continental Divide Trail is not nearly as well defined as the other two trails. So there's parts where you kind of have this option. Oh, I can kind of loop around this way. I can go around this way. So I took always the difficult, most circuitous route to go north. Also, I dealt with a lot of snow because I went through Colorado in the month of May, which has a ton of snow. Um, so you can imagine, you know, Norway's got a lot of snow in May as well. Uh, so in, in certain parts of it, right? So that's kind of the conditions I was going up. So on the way back, I was like, okay, now I've got a lot of time. I'm sorry. I have time and I'm going to take the fastest way back. I'm going to not retrace my steps all the time because I'm going to be taking the more expedient route on the way down. And. It's going to be snow-free. And so therefore, even in the places like in Colorado that were covered in snow, it's going to look like a different world because it's going to be the fall and it's going to have like foliage and and look totally different. So for me, it was just like, great. It feels like I was doing a different, completely different trail on the way back. So you're one of those
0: few people that have hiked the Triple Crown, essentially. Correct, is what those yeah. Three long-distance trails are. And I that, read somewhere right. that... I don't know if this is a fact, but that more people I think have been to space than have hiked the Triple Crown or something like that. That might
1: have been that. Well, yeah, that's probably true. Go to space, right? I was thought I thought you were going to say the moon, but um, the but yeah, space definitely. I'm going to guess the Triple Crown maybe has about a hundred people who've done it, but I haven't kept up with statistics because ever since that book by Cheryl Stray called Wild, have you heard of that book? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, that just kicked. So Bill Bryson, when he wrote A Walk in the Woods, that just catapulted the Appalachian Trail into popularity. Then when Cheryl Strayed wrote wrote Wild, that catapulted the Pacific Crest Trail. So when I did the Pacific Crest Trail, there was maybe 200, 300 people per season, per year doing it. 200, 300. It's now 10 times more, Jason. You've got 2,000, 3,000 people doing it. So it's just a it's it's a different environment. So nowadays, I'm guessing that more and more people have done the Triple Crown, but somehow a lot of people shy away from the Continental Divide Trail because it's the longest trail, it's the least well-defined, and so as a result, there's not as many people as you think uh, doing the Triple Crown. Yeah, it's a rare thing, still.
0: The Continental Divide Trail, from my understanding, would that be the more of a would you describe that as more of a wilderness hike than the other ones? Not that the other ones you're not in the wilderness, but you know, there's some culture around the Appalachian Trail, I know, and you're, you're seeing it's more, there are social elements to that, I guess. And it sounds like the PCT is growing into that a bit.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, but there's, I would say that the the Continental Levi Trail and the PCT are more like brothers and sisters versus the Appalachian Trail is like a cousin. So the Appalachian Trail is kind of like the social trail, just like you. You termed it. It's very closest to civilization. You're rarely a, more than a day's walk from any civilization, and usually just an hour or two um, from civilization. You just walk down, you know, take one of the what's called the, the blue trails, which are kind of offshoots, and you can jump off the Appalachian Trail uh, pretty easily. The, the Pacific Trust Trail, because of, like you said, the co- popularity, it's becoming different. Uh, it's coming a little bit more, but still it goes through wilderness. I would say the there, I say the PCT and the CDT are both wilderness trails, as much as we can get wilderness in the contiguous United States. If you want real, real wilderness, you've got to go to Alaska or Canada or, or Siberia. Or maybe Lapland. You go. To, you probably can find some decent wilderness up there in Norway. in oh, the, yeah. the north Lapland, <laughs> out there. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Come for a visit, man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Actually, I, I did. I didn't do. I, I did do the fjords of Norway, but I it, I had a more uh, adventure of in Lapland in Finland when I was hiking up in uh, in 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 Finland in uh, Karhunkieros trail, as they call it, anyway. Yeah,
0: and uh, that's how actually your book opens, Hidden Europe, which is awesome. It's a great story where you're locked in an outhouse. You lock yourself into an outhouse, essentially. Exactly. And there is nobody around to save your ass.
1: That's right. Yeah, I was there. It It was the longest day of the year. It was June 21st. And I was going to hike this whole trail. I can't remember how many miles it was. It must've been like some 50 miles or something like that. I was gonna do it all 24 hour period. And <laughs> yeah, you know, outhouses, they have that lock that's on the outside to keep the rodents from getting into the, the outhouse. And I, uh, when I closed myself in it, the latch just clook, closed me in. And then all of a sudden I was like, fuck, I can't get out. And it was like midnight, and it was cold. It wasn't like freezing, but it was cold. And I was like, all my backpack, all my food, all my clothes were outside the outhouse, <laughs> and I was banging on the door, you know, throwing my body against it. I was like, get me out of here, yelling, but of course, nobody was there. <laughs> no, yeah. How did? You, uh, well, so we the, should, yeah. yeah how ahead. I'll give away the, the ending. Those it's free to download on the on the my website but you can I got on my back so I put my back against the uh the toilet seat and I so I was I just imagine me resting on my back with my legs cocked against the door and then I just did like some kung fu kicks in rapid fire succession just going bang 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 many 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 times and until about maybe 20 kicks and all the latch just went poof. It didn't break the latch. It, you know, I'm not that tough. <laughs> it's it just it just the vibration just knocked it off.
0: The butterfly effect. Maybe you had to hike all those thousands of miles just to build up your leg strength to bust <laughs> out of that house. <laughs> Otherwise, you would still be in there looking like the frozen dead guy from Netherland, Colorado. If anybody's That's, been right. That. That's right. That's <laughs> right. All right. So we're in this whole mix of uh, hiking, and we're going to get into some of your later travels, but... Um, I want to talk about where the career stuff fit in. You said you started backpacking when you were 29 and you got more serious about it. And then I'm guessing you did the Appalachian Trail around, how old were you when you did the Appalachian Trail?
1: I was 30. Yeah. Okay. So it was like the yeah. year after you started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got into right backpacking. In. I went all in and then I just like, okay. apple, And then, uh, so I was 30 and then about, let me see, uh, three years later I did, no, I did Eastern Europe and then. When I was like 36, I think I was, yeah, 36, I did the Pacific Crest Trail, and then when I was 38, I did the Continental Divide Trail.
0: Were you working traditional jobs up until
1: the Appalachian Trail? What were you doing? Yeah, I was working in Silicon Valley, and I worked for Hitachi, and I worked for Microsoft up in Redmond, Washington. And the, here's the thing is that again, a a tip, I mean, I know you cover this a lot in your podcast, but you got to learn how to live below your means. And I think if you, if that's your goal to travel, you got to learn to live below your means. And that's something that a lot of people struggle to do, especially in America, but I think probably in Europe as well and all over the world. And so I was making a boatload of money being paid at Microsoft and, 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 uh, Hitachi, but I was living like a fucking student. I just paid like $600 a month just to rent a room right by the Microsoft campus. I could just walk to the campus. I didn't have to like have a bike. All I had was a bicycle. It was just so simple. And that allowed me to accumulate what I call fuck you money. So basically, you save up so much money that you can say fuck you to any situation so you've got a bad relationship. You're dating somebody you don't like, or you're living with somebody you don't like, or you're living in a city you don't like, or you don't you have a job you don't like. You know that. Then this gives you the chance to say, "Fuck you! I'm leaving the situation. I'm getting out, and I'm going to wherever." And a lot of us don't have that. Fuck you! Money saved up, and that's what you've got to do. And you can save that up whether you're making thirty thousand dollars a year or three hundred thousand dollars a year. It's possible to save it all up.
0: I guess, and if you're living below your means, that fuck you money is, you don't need as much, right? <laughs> if you're right, not, exactly. If you don't yeah. have a lot to maintain. Exactly. So, right. Well, there are certain habits that kind of get built with that as well. And sometimes, I mean, for me, it was a little bit of the reverse. I started traveling and working on the road when I was out of college. So then, oh, I got into the minimalism lifestyle because I couldn't really carry that much with me. And then I carried that with me into my... uh regular life later on, like when I wasn't traveling as much. But of course, the reverse, if you're minimal and you don't need as much before you travel, then you're already used to kind of living without, I guess, or or not living up to a certain standard, whatever you want to call that. So did you always know that you were going to take off and travel? Like, was that always the plan? Or you said you got your MBA at Harvard. Were you kind of on the career track, mindset-wise, for a little while? Yes, I was. was Yeah. yeah. What, what happened there? Was it yeah, just so, the hiking or yeah, what happened?
1: Yeah. So Harvard was to me an ultimate insurance policy. It was the, you know, if all of a sudden you've got your ripcord, you start, like your second parachute, your reserve parachute. So I was like, okay, before going to Harvard business school, I thought to myself, okay, do I really need to go to, I don't need to go to business school to start a fucking company. Anybody can start a fucking company. You can just, you don't need to have that degree. But I said, wouldn't it be nice to have that reserve parachute in case, All hell breaks loose. The company fails, I lose, I get into debt, or who knows what else, and I need to just have a real job and just to survive and go up. Well, that gives me the option to always find a job fairly easily. And so I'd invested in that education in order to give me that kind of security and backup. And But what a lot of people, when they go to these uh, good school and get good education, they just follow the traditional route, as opposed to using that as a reserve parachute and say, you know what? I can now take crazy-ass risks with my life and do something crazy and take a big swing at the fences and go for it all. Because if I fail, I still have an insurance policy. That's my education. I can fall back on.
0: Yeah. Well, at what point in the journey were you like, you know what, this, I am going to use this as a fallback option and I'm going to switch my life to be all like full time on the road.
1: Pacific Crest Trail. That was when I finally, so 2001, when I did the Appalachian Trail. That's when I was like, okay, I discovered my life purpose. This is what I really want to do. For and the you just future. you just learned that on the trail. Yeah, yeah. I just you know you have a lot of time to think about it. And back then, it's also back in two thousand and one, there was no smartphones. There was almost very little GPS, and 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 so you were really much more disconnected on the Appalachian Trail or any of these trails than before. I didn't have uh, any phone with me. It was just no email. I didn't check that. It was just. It was a very different world back then, and so you really disconnected, and that gave you the chance to really sit there and think about your, your, your life and reflect in, in ways that I think are much harder to do nowadays. You have to force yourself to take off that stupid uh, smartphone and, and, and disconnect. So that's, to me, what was the, the impetus. And then in 2006 is when I finally officially—that was my last honest job that was Microsoft— And that was 2006. Yeah. So about, you're looking at how many years ago is that? 13 years ago. So ever since then, I've been traveling.
0: And you had your FU money. So you said FU. Or maybe not. Exactly. Maybe you actually shook hands and were like, "Oh, let's leave on good terms. I'll see you later." <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Of course, yeah. You could have. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to get into some of the uh, the content in your books, uh, hidden the hidden Europe, a little bit of hike your own hike too. But um, before we get into that, I just wanted to ask you really quickly. Just stay on this topic of money because it's such a big topic for people saving for travel obviously the number one struggle oftentimes is money and you mentioned living below your means but as far as saving money any strategies techniques things that you can share that have worked well for you that anybody can implement outside of like living below your means i would love to hear them
1: yeah specific uh tips um boy you can do jumps you have diving. <laughs> certain investments or something. Were you just putting it in the bank? What were you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I really lucked out. So, two thousand one was uh, obviously September eleventh. That happened and that ca- crashed the stock market. And this is a really, you know, I, I, you know, one thing you learn in business school. And yet, you, you don't need to go to business school to know this simple lesson: is to buy low, sell high. So, when there's blood on the streets, that's when you want to. Invest and make uh, big purchases. When people are talking about, when let's say the stock market or any market, it could be the commodities market or uh, Bitcoin, whatever thing, when people are saying, oh my God, it's already lost X amount of value, let's say 20%, 30%, and then people start making predictions like it's probably going to go to zero or the, the collapse of the whole stock market, the whole economic system is going to shit. Like in 2008, it happened all over again. Everybody's all this doomsday. Uh, stuff like, oh my God, this is, that's when all of a sudden you're like, great. Everybody thinks the whole world's going to shit. We're going to on the, we're on the brink of a catastrophe. That's when you want to invest and invest big time, make a huge chunk of money and put in. And I did that in 2002 and I did that again in 2009. And then conversely, the flip side of that is that when the people are talking about, oh my God, the stock market's going to go to 50,000. You know, the Dow Jones is going to go to 50,000 or, you know, Bitcoin's going to make it to 50,000 or whatever the, the investment vehicle or, or the or housing prices, they're just going to keep going up forever. Eh? Well, that's the time when you want to sell your fucking house and and get out of that that whole thing. So, But it's very, very hard to do. It's easy for me to say that, but it's just really hard to go against the grain. But I think a lot of your listeners, are people who are contrarian, people who are saying, you know, wow, everybody's looking after this career and I want to do this career. I want to do something different. I want to either travel the world or I want to travel for a month or I want to go on a sabbatical, I want to do something different. And so those types of people already have an advantage. You are a contrarian thinker, you're probably going to make some good investments. And so that's where I took my fucking money and multiplied it, doubled it, tripled it. And that's that was a, a combination of luck but also understanding the psychology of markets.
0: This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway streaming services. Go to usbank.com altitude. Go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big! destinations on earth we're excited to partner with nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off the beaten path destinations to visit and there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 nissan pathfinder with seven drive modes the pathfinder's available intelligent four x four is built for even the most epic journeys and it even has the best towing capacity in its class up to six thousand pounds and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point about travelers, the way we travel in general, just being kind of contrarian in, in that way and looking at it that way. I think that's a good, good lens through which you can find some potential either investment opportunities or just unique strategies to save that maybe weren't exposed to growing up. I mean, a lot of times, early on at least, I mean, how you treat money or your attitude around money can be, tied in with how your parents talked about it or treated it and you know until you separate the psychology of that out and take it for yourself it becomes a you can create that conversation for yourself but you have to kind of be self-aware to do it
1: right right absolutely and here's let me give you a concrete example for you and your listeners jason so Bitcoin. When my brother actually bought Bitcoin when it was one dollar, he bought ten bitcoins for one dollar, and then of course the exchange that he was holding the Bitcoin at got hacked, and he lost all his Bitcoin. But <laughs> but it was great. He had he had foresight. Um, but I remember when Bitcoin was a thousand dollars, and then all sorry twelve hundred dollars, and then it collapsed down to two hundred. So from twelve hundred to two hundred, and I thought to myself, this is a great time to buy. So I bought it around two fifty, and then it. Did really well. It's gone up ever since. And then again, Bitcoin went up to 20,000. And then everybody was talking about how Bitcoin was just going to go forever up, 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 up. But I waited for it to collapse again down to 3,500. In fact, I even recorded a podcast in December 2018. And I told people, buy Bitcoin because it's going to at least double in 2019. And the Bitcoin was at that point had lost 85 or 90% of its value, it was down to 3,200. And today, as we're recording this, it's around $10,000. So it's already, you would have tripled your money in the last six months. So that's just an example. I'm not saying Bitcoin's going to go up forever or whatever. But the point is, is that it's another example of, of using that fuck you money, your little reserve, investing it wisely, making it grow.
0: On the writing side, did you always know you're a writer, want to be a writer? You came out of the, the first adventure writing your... Hike Your Own Hike, right? That was after the Appalachian Trail. Yeah. I mean, what propelled you to write the book? Uh, was it the mission that you kind of came to that realization? All right, hey, I want this this to be something that's part of my life. Or did you want to be a travel writer at a certain point? Where's the writing Yeah.
1: Color? So here's the thing is, that one of the questions I asked myself on the Appalachian Trail is, what would I do? and this is why I ask your your listeners what would you do if you had a billion dollars not how you would spend the money but how would you spend your fucking time what would you you wake up in the morning and what would you do would you be a hairdresser would you like i mean is that what you like to do you like to hairdress all day long do you like to do interior design do you like to play football i don't know what what is there your passion and so whatever that is it's stuff that you would do no matter what and so you know, look at Bill Gates. Bill Gates has billions of dollars. Jeff Bezos has billions of dollars, but they're still doing their, their, their things, <laughs> their companies. They're not doing it for the money, really. I, I can't believe that. So it's just because they're so passionate about it. And so that's what I thought. And I thought to myself, huh, if I had a ton of money, what I would do is I just travel the world and I love to write. So why don't I just marry those two somehow and make a career out of that? Because you can make a career out of almost anything. You can make money almost doing anything. It's not easy, but it's, it's possible.
0: Yeah, and uh, you're an amazing writer, by the way. I just wanted to compliment you. that, From what I've gotten through in your book, I've absolutely loved it. We're going to talk about the hidden Europe now, what Eastern Europeans can teach us. I love that tagline. You did something similar in Eastern Europe that you just did in Africa, right? You just decided to go and spend all of your time and go to every country, but I think you broke it up differently. Just want to give people some context on uh, what you did here.
1: Yeah, sure. So I went in East I went to Eastern Europe for about three and a half years. Actually I went first time was in two thousand four and I visited all the Eastern European countries. And I was intending to write the book, but then life got to me and I decided to hike the other trails. And by the time I finished the other two trails, the book was already kind of, you know, my experience I felt was a little bit too dated. So I revisited it instead of spending just five months, I decided to spend another three years there. I went all in. I defined Eastern Europe super broadly. So imagine if you have to divide Europe into East and West, and there's no Northern Europe, Southern Europe, no Central Europe, just East and West. How would you divide it? And so I divided it very broadly. So Slovenia and everything to the east of Slovenia, including, by the way, Finland, I included Greece, and Turkey, even. Uh, these, of course, a lot of people, and Russia. So a lot of people don't agree with such a broad definition, but you can, if you search for where is Eastern Europe on Google, you'll find my article and it corresponds that. Now, did you, did you include those
0: just so you could have more countries to go to? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're like, yeah, we're going to (laughs) include Thailand here. Uh, I think I need some beach time. (laughs) Exactly (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah. So that was my very broad definition of Eastern Europe, and I I don't expect everybody to agree with it. Certainly not the Eastern Europeans. But that was the funny thing about Eastern Europe is that people in Eastern Europe just don't want to be called Eastern Europeans. Often, not all of them, but often they they resist it, especially if they live in Central Europe, like Hungary or uh, Poland. If you are Czech Republic, Czech Republic, you know, <laughs> those guys really hate it when you call them Eastern Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, I mean, do uh, you have a home base?
1: That you yeah, can- I would, I would say, I mean, it's my mom's house in California and that's kind of where I, I've spent of the last, let's say 13 years, I've probably spent about, if cumulatively, maybe a little bit over a year here, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Like which that. is not very know, much I mean, time. too. Yeah. Maybe two years if you added all it because there's been like a few because when my dad died, I spent more time with my mom, uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was it.
0: So, sorry yeah. to hear that. Okay, so you're basically, fully nomadic life. I mean, you just kind of dove into that with the international travel. It sounds like, right? I mean, was as far as Eastern Europe and this whole mission for this book First of all, why do you,
1: why do you set up these types of
0: missions for yourself when it comes to your travels?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I like to go in all in. So if you look at a lot of travel bloggers and a lot of uh, nomads, it's pretty much haphazard. I mean, it's certainly around the world ticket is, you know, you know I'm in Thailand, I'm in Australia, next thing I'm in uh, Dubai, and then I'm in Kenya, and then I'm in uh, Frankfurt, and then I'm, <laughs> it's just, it's, which is fun, it's diverse, It's it's you see all sorts of different parts of the world, but I kind of love to like sink my teeth into travel, and to really go all in, and to understand the culture, understand the people, and understand the nuances between all these places. So especially like, what's the difference between Slovenia and Slovakia, Lithuania and Latvia? You know, to me, it's, it's you can just, if you run through Lithuania and Latvia you're not going to really try to capture too much of that you might say well they speak different languages that's it you know they both have some russian ethnic russian population that's it and, and you don't capture much more than that so i think the fun part about travel is not the monuments it's not the buildings it's and the food is part of it but i just like to understand the people and the mentalities and where we have things in common and where there are differences and how's a a, you know, somebody from Kenya different from somebody from Tanzania. And I understand there's a lot of generalities built into that, but to me, I just love digging into that and seeing the overlaps. And what happens is it's a not, it's not a science. It's very anecdotal, but if you get a lot of data points, Jason, then also I think it gets to be a little bit more scientific, especially when you m- marry it with statistics and, and other uh, data that's out there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's something also to just having that intention as a traveler, right? Because you're, that is fueling your conversations on the ground and your interactions, right? Because you're you're aware of this need, this desire to kind of understand the maybe some of the cultural subtleties, why people feel a certain way, which are difficult things to understand unless you spend a lot of time in one place.
1: Right, and the, the example of one thing that just popped into my mind in, in Hungary— so Hungary is going to have, I think, in uh, this year or next year, I can't remember. It. I think it's next year. So they're going to have the twenty. They're going to have their anniversary of the Treaty of Trianon. This Treaty of Trianon that happened in nineteen twenty, I believe it is, is such a scar in the psyche of the Hungarian people. You would never pick up on that if you're just barreling through Hungary and going to Budapest and having a fun time. But as I hung out with Hungarians, it just kept coming up in my conversations, and I was like what the fuck is this Treaty of Trianon that they're all worked up about? It happened 100 fucking years ago. Why is it a big deal? And yet you start delving into it, and you're like, wow, this is something. And this is so pertinent to Hungary, and almost nobody else on the planet cares about that stupid Treaty of Trianon. But the mm-hmm. Hungarians, it's a big fucking deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. I mean, that's kind of like the statue you were, you were writing about in Estonia. I think right. Was, yeah, the- yeah. Yeah, the statue Russian statue. Yeah, very controversial, and it went up at night, and everybody had like really super strong opinions on it. And yeah, yeah, it's just like you said, passing through. oh it sounds like all right. Well, that's just a small thing, but it's not. It's not a small thing if everybody's talking about it, and it's like a huge part of their culture. It's it's a big thing, you know, which is a huge advantage of staying there and learning that uh, type of getting that type of knowledge. Or you said like data points, and I'm guessing. When you reference data points, you're talking about kind of these different conversations you're having on the ground and these
1: interactions, right? Right, right, right. So there's the anecdotal data points is th- that's that I gather, but then there's also things like the Pew Research Center, like the Gallup polls, and looking at the UN's United Nations statistics, so that you can kind of have some sort of sanity check. Like if you with 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 your anecdotal data, does your anecdotal data will, uh, contradict? Some of this, you know, like, for example, I don't know, uh, I'll give you an extreme example here. Like, I go to Guinea-Bissau, and all of a sudden, all the people I hang out with in Gideon's power are fabulously rich and so they're all nice houses. And I say, like, I don't know. I think this UN United Nations statistic that they are, you know, the lowest GDP per capita and one of the poorest countries in the world is bullshit because you know, everybody I hang out with is like really super nice. They got this great electricity and everything is working. <laughs> so it's so you have to you have to sometimes realize that just because you got into a taxi cab— and the taxi driver ripped you off or stole from you, and he's Turkish. That not all Turkish people are thieves. <laughs> as a result, <laughs> you know? so it, it, sometimes I think, and this is the fault I think that a lot of travel writers uh, make. The mistake that a lot of travel writers make is that they jump to conclusions based on few anecdotal data points. And I'm trying. I try to in my writing to be careful to do that before I jump to a, make a generalization. Does it have more data to back it up than just my two, three anecdotal data points.
0: Yeah. Some of those posts out there is like, hey, I spent three days here. Here,
1: here are the things you should do. It's like, really? Okay, And yeah, you may not have seen the whole country, right? No, that's right. How do you meet locals? Oh, couch surfing is one of the great mechanisms. So a lot of people do couch surfing just to save money. And I just don't find it's a big money saver unless you're going to spend several days with that person or family or that host. Because I wrote, if you Google couch surfing, how to be a guest or sign like that you'll find my article number one. In fact, couch surfing themselves, the company, uh, approached me and said, Francis, can we copy your article and put it on our official Couchsurfing page on how to be a good guest and a good host. And I said, okay, yeah, you can reuse my content. Go ahead. Just give me some credit. And so Couchsurfing themselves has used my article uh, for that. So I encourage your readers to read it if, if they're going to do Couchsurfing, surfing. But the, the gist of the article is that you got to be a generous guest and not be a selfish guest. And to be a generous guest usually costs money. And, Hostels are not that expensive, and so in the end, the savings is pretty minimal. And sometimes they also consume some of your time uh, because you want to hang out with your host. You don't want to just treat it like a hostel or a hotel. But for me, as a writer who's trying to get into the psyche and the knowledge and see what people eat, how they treat the husbands treat their wives, and how the childrens respect their parents or don't respect their parents, and and how the educational system is, and how do people hang out, and and. Uh, you know, what, how, you know, how are the bathrooms? Do they have running water? I don't know. Just to me, it's, it's such a wonderful insight into the culture. And so that's how you meet locals. And of course, they're usually use you as an excuse to go out and say, Hey, let me introduce you some of my friends. So all of a sudden you've expanded that circle of, of, of connections, that circle of friends with you. So you get to really get to me. And for me, that's, what I live for. Some people, they travel for the food. Some people travel for the sites. Other people travel for the mountains, whatever it is. But for me, I just love getting to understand the people. And couch surfing is one of the best ways to do that.
0: Yeah. That has been one of your biggest resources, I guess. And to tap in to the local culture, like you said, meeting other people, I guess, through the host and everything like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other way, I mean, a lot of cultures, I mean, there's some conservative cultures that don't let you do this, but when I take buses, trains, or any kind of public transportation, I almost always look at the person next to me and say, hey, how's it going? You know, I strike up a conversation with anybody. Uh, and and just inevitably, it's 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 just fun. It, it's just serendipity. You increase those butterfly effect moments. You know, that's just, it's, it's great.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that you also get a little bit of a free pass as a foreign traveler, right? Yeah. Like, I get that in Norway because one of the things that isn't really in their culture is... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds mean, but is to, like, talk to each other on the street. Yeah, yeah. No, you're <laughs> right.
1: But Nordic... That's the whole Nordic thing, dude. It's not yeah, just... Yeah, I mean, it's apparently, not, it's, it's
0: because it's, they... It's, like, considered impolite. So they're actually being polite by not really interacting with each other, which sounds funny, but it's, like, their version of politeness is from what I've, what I've learned. But... I'm American. I'm super chatty, right? Exactly. So right. I can be standing in line. <laughs> You've got a fucking wherever. podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you like to chat. <laughs> <laughs> I like to chat. And I like like you. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by people. I mean, there's a reason I have this podcast and these things. I mean, I love to have these conversations. So that includes anywhere I go. And yeah, so I can kind of start chatting with these people. And they... I mean, there might be a split second sometimes where they kind of give me like that they're caught off guard type of thing. Right, right, right. But then, oh, well, I'm not from here. So then it's like, cool. And you find that they're like really excited to open up and they all actually want to talk to each other. They're just not doing it for some (laughs) reason. I mean, I can't change an entire culture. (laughs) 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 Anyway, if Norwegians, any Norwegians are listening, just talk to each other a little more yeah, you guys are no all kidding. really nice all really yeah, nice no.
1: it's the same thing i remember the same the same shit in finland same thing yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the Finns are just so insular and even estonia to a large extent they just don't talk to each other it, the only exception jason is when they drink a beer oh yeah yeah that's all a yeah, sudden then all of a sudden every, they, their personality opens up and changes completely
0: yeah everything loosens up then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, makes that's a generalization we can make across all cultures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably...
1: Well, but see, the thing is... But see, but I don't know because like Americans, I think in general are pretty... Or Latin Americans, they don't need a beer necessarily to open up and become chatty. You know? Uh, you know? So, but the the Northern European and, and Southern Europeans like the Balkans, they don't need a beer to open up either. They'll just go off on, on you, the Greeks, the Serbians, all those guys. But... But the northern Europeans, and just uh, they are just whew, closed up. <laughs> They're closed up, and they need that little lubricant in there to like open them up.
0: <laughs> it works. I'm curious why you picked Eastern Europe for this. I mean, you're you're dedicating years of your life to get to know each of these individual countries, and I mean, you could have you could have taken this to South America, you could have taken this to Asia, you could have taken this to a lot of places. Why did you choose to go to Eastern Europe?
1: Yeah, so I had known Western Europe. I, when I was graduated from college, I went on a 75-day trip to all the uh, Western European countries, basically, and a, and a couple of Central European countries in there. And I wanted to—Eastern Europe was a big, strange place to me. And so I said, okay, this is where I would like to, to just— Get to know, so I was just looking at the map, and we can all do this. You look at the map and you say, Where are the holes in my map? Where are the places I haven't been to, the regions I haven't been to? And at that time, back in 2004, I hadn't been at all pretty much to Eastern Europe, except for those a couple of Central European countries. So I really want to explore that region. I hadn't been to Africa, I hadn't been to the Middle East, I had barely been to Asia. So there's basically a whole lot of shit that I didn't know, but South America I didn't know. So Eastern Europe was kind of like, eh, This is, looks like should be fun. Um. And, and, and Eastern Europe is also really relatively tame. I mean, you compare it to Africa, you compare it to the Middle East, it looks tame to me. And so as a solo traveler, as a young guy, just kind of just like, all right, I'm just going to give this a shot. And I'm not that experienced in traveling. It's kind of like the 101 class. You can, if you can do Eastern Europe, then at least you've graduated and you can try something a little bit more challenging. Kind of like the Appalachian Trail is to the Continental Levi Trail, if you will. Got it. Yeah.
0: Uh, I will. yeah Um, all right i'm gonna
1: hold you to that
0: (laughs) (laughs) what are some of the destinations that you'd like to highlight from that time of your life because for me eastern europe is one of those a lot of holes in the map situations that you mentioned i really want to go and explore and i've been thinking about okay well if we're going to do you know maybe live in a get an rv or something would you want to do that around the states like i've done that before would you want to do eastern europe something like that something i haven't been and i'm really curious as far as like what places you loved didn't like i mean i know that's very subjective of course and those are probably too strong of adjectives to even use like or didn't like i mean the places are more nuanced than that but i just want to hear a little bit more from you uh, as what are some of those places that really felt special to you maybe that you connected to personally
1: so in the back of my book, which you, I know you haven't gone to the end of it, but it, just skip it forward. I think it's like the very last, after the conclusion, I think it is. I list like the top 10 travel or 15 places. Yeah. Travel recommendations. Yeah. Very back there. And then I list my favorite destinations in Eastern Europe. But off the top of my head, one of the things I always bang the drum on is Qatar. Qatar, Montenegro. Have you been there? No. Have you been to Dubrovnik? No. Okay. Then, then I respect you. See, I respect you. Because uh, <laughs> so many motherfuckers, they all go to Dubrovnik, which is utterly spectacular. Fantastic. It's right there on the, at the bottom of Croatia on the coastline. Wonderful place. And they don't get on a fucking bus or take a car, which just is about an hour away, maybe two hours max, is Kotor, Montenegro. And is the southernmost fjords. You're in Norway. You like your fjords. Well, how about fjords with a bit of warmth to them?
0: Yes. <laughs> I like the sound of that a lot.
1: <laughs> and how about, you know, at the base of those fjords, these pedestrian-only cities, old medieval towns that are walled up, no cars. The particular one is called Kotor, but there's a couple of other ones nearby, um, like there's Budvar, there's... Um, I can't remember how there's Hertz in Anyway, these are all in that zone right there. So amazing. And so I always slap people as hard as I can, Jason, <laughs> when I find out that they go to Dubrovnik and they did not go the extra mile to go to Kotor, Montenegro because that is my favorite place of Eastern Europe. There. Really? Yes, wow. dude. Okay. Yes, dude. Yes, dude. Abs- dude, I almost bought a fucking house there. There's the tallest really? mountain. Yes, there's a the, the the highest house on the hill in Cotter Montenegro. I went there and there's an old lady there and I even made an offer to her. Back then it was 100,000 euros or something like that to just get this house that didn't even have a toilet, like a, it had an outhouse and that kind of stuff. But my God, the view. So when you go to Cotter Montenegro, you want to like hike up the hill. There's a fortress above the city. And you want to hike up to that fortress on the way up, depending on the way you take, you might be passing that old lady's house. And when you do turn around and look at the view, you're going to see the rooftops of this old city, the red rooftops of the old city, plus the water, the bay that's there. So you got the blue and then you've got the majestic mountains and the, behind it. So think about that. Just picture that. That is Kotor, Montenegro, best place Not only in Eastern Europe, but maybe even in Europe. I mean, it's so fucking beautiful and amazing. I love it. I really love it, and I highly recommend going there. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee
0: every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years. I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, So they also make an exceptional gift, thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me. Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there.
1: (sighs) Your fjords are nice, dude. Norway's got nice fjords. No question about it. Snow-capped fjords are beautiful and stuff like that. But if you actually want to walk around in a t-shirt or a bikini, uh, go down there. That's where you want to go and you're going to (laughs) have some nice time. Really nice time.
0: Have there been any other places that you felt that strongly about where you? I mean, obviously, this is a big standout from, I can hear your description. I'm like, my wanderlust is a, uh, if you can salivate my <laughs> wanderlusting, I'm doing it. Um, you know, places that you felt like, hey, maybe not, all right, I'm not going to live here, but I could live here because it's that special.
1: Mm, yeah i like in africa i really like a uh, mauritius a lot I, I i can't bring myself to live in an island country i mean like uh like Ho- or an island place any island frankly like hawaii hawaii is you wonderful just get but I- I'm like, island
0: fever too yeah, much yeah
1: it's 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 so stupid because you know of course we all live on fucking islands you're there in oslo right it's not an island but really if you want to get anywhere where are you going to do you're going to get on a fucking plane right No, yeah, that's
0: true I, yeah. It's not in the so, middle of the ocean, though. I don't have to go super far to go somewhere. No, but the
1: point is is that you're probably not going to get in your car and drive to Poland. Yeah. That you know, sounds awesome,
0: though. I, w- I would like to do that No, if I, I had a car. Yeah, sure. okay, yeah, right, right, right. But I know what you're but, saying. I know what you're yeah. saying. Yeah.
1: In other words, we're all living on islands. You could you can live in Chicago, and you're like, yeah, you're not on an island, but effectively to go, unless you really like to drive across Kansas and Nebraska... You're probably going to get onto a plane. So in some ways, all I'm saying is that this whole thing, like, I don't want to live on an island. I don't want to have island mentality. I've been fever. Yes, but a lot of it's just nowadays with the planes and the cheapness of planes, everybody gets on a fucking plane. So everybody's living on a fucking island, effectively, in a sense. So um, anyway, but having said that, I just, I think that y- you've got uh, Mauritius is a, is a wonderful African islands off the east coast of Africa and it has a nice blend of indian culture mixed in with uh sub saharan culture and it's developed it's not uh you know it, it it doesn't have a lot of the infrastructure and headaches that the mainland africa often has and it doesn't have the racism of south africa and so it's just a it's a it's a it's a wonderful blend and i enjoyed it a lot that's definitely another place i could theoretically see myself living in as well
0: do you ever have that dilemma with yourself when you're traveling around because nomadic traveling around for years and you said you know you have the fu money you're doing your travel writing you could go anywhere do you have those moments where you think uh should i settle down maybe i'm thinking about like not settling down because that's again too strong reward for travelers i don't know just that that sort of dilemma of hey how long do i want to keep traveling or should i set up a base somewhere does that Do you deal with that at all from time to
1: time? I definitely do. I mean, I just got married uh, about three years ago, and that was a big, big, big fucking decision. Um, I had never been married in my life. I was 46 years old when I finally married this uh, woman from Cameroon. And uh, it was a real challenge. I was just like, oh, shit, commitment, uh, something constant. And, and, you know, women are going to ask for, I mean, not just women, but even men, they want a base, you know, that kind of stuff. So... It, it's it's always been on my mind. It's something that I've postponed and it's something I think all nomads face. There's that you know I was talking to Gary Arndt another uh, travel blogger and you know he finally you know has his Minnesota uh, his place up in Minnesota up there. Uh, what do you, what's with travel bloggers living in these tundra places? Like you and up in Norway, <laughs> Gary aren't up in Minnesota because <laughs> you don't like the beach. <laughs>
0: you guys can oh, live like anywhere, but, anywhere, but anywhere. Like, Hey, like you, I met my wife while I was traveling. So, um, right.
1: she's yeah. not Norwegian, is she?
0: She's Norwegian, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. That's why you're there. Okay. okay. So, yeah. Okay. Hey, I, I, <laughs> there's,
0: a lot, there's a lot cheaper places to live than Norway.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <You> no <know> shit.
0: <laughs> you don't know, want, want to know how much this beer costs, so. Oh, yeah, I know. It's probably $8, I'm sure. God.
1: <laughs> it's crazy. But, yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, by the way, and speaking about places to settle, I love to, I'm a sucker for gallup polls and pew research polls and that kind of stuff and gallup uh, does a really good re- a lot of research and and one of the things that they do is look at the happiness of people and how happy how much they laughed yesterday and how much you know just general culture and the people in the americas especially latin america you know so americas including canada and and the united states but the americas but especially latin america are the happiest and joyful people in the world. And I say I think that weighs so much. And maybe I'm biased because my mom is from Chile, but by the way, Chile is probably the grumpiest of all the Latin American countries. So I'm, I don't think it's it's that. And my mom definitely can be grumpy. But the point is, is that the I think when you're choosing a place to settle down to and live, nowadays, especially in the globalized world where you can get any you know, G five technology phone, you can get internet, high speed internet, almost anywhere on the planet nowadays. And you can order almost anything from anywhere that nowadays you should really think about what's the culture and the people around you, because that makes, yeah, you can create any community that you want, but you can't create the country. You can, like, pick your friends. You can have my 5, 10 great friends that I see regularly, and they're all wonderful, not like the, you know, but 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 you can't make the whole country. And so, to me, that's another region of the world that I would certainly consider living in is Latin America, just because I always have a smile on my face in Latin America. And not just me, but everybody on the street in general is very happy, and that just makes you feel great.
0: Yeah, so you're three years into the marriage. It sounds like you're still traveling and doing those types of things. Are you? Are these well, like multi-year so time adventures? Out. So, yeah, so go we ahead. got
1: married. So we, so we met in Cameroon, but we got married in Zambia by uh, the Zambezi uh, River, off the Zambezi River near Victoria Falls in Livingston, and then from there, rejoice and I, rejoice is her name, rejoice and I traveled to 31 African countries together, and so we had a great time doing all that. And then we went to Europe and we visited a bunch of countries there. She really wanted to go to Norway, by the way, but we didn't have time. So uh, she, she loves Scandinavia for some uh, reason. She's just high on her list. And I think it's because she likes tall, bl- bl- blue-eyed blonde people So that look like Thor. And somehow she ended up with me, a short, balding guy. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but the point is, is that uh, we came back to America. Then we took Amtrak across America. And we visited about 18 states on the way, and and we came back here. And so now, the last uh, year, she came here uh, almost a year ago. By the time this recording comes out, it will be have been a year that she's been in America, and she's studying to become a nurse. But anyway, the point is, is that we have next on our radar is the West and Central Asia. Have you been there, West and Central Asia, Jason?
0: No, not really. Are you talking about okay. like Mongolia and places like that?
1: Uh, that? Yeah, that's probably Central Asia. Yeah, but I wouldn't. What I would say, I would say the Stans is the border of the Stans. So Kazakhstan. Oh yeah, is, no, that kind of stuff. high on the hit hot hit list, yeah. of
0: course, like everything yeah. else that you've talked.
1: about. I want to go everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. That's the region. So, so those the, that's the Central Asia, and then Western Asia, which nobody refers to it as Western Asia, but it really is, is the Middle East. It's another word for it, and so that includes all the. Arab countries there and uh, Iran, etc. So that will be my next thing. And that that's where Rejoice and I will be traveling again together and explore that region. So that will be fun. It's a little bit harder with her because she has a passport from Cameroon and she's not an American citizen yet. And I don't think she's going to become an American citizen by uh, the time I want to go off to Western Central Asia. So we'll have to work on that. And I was blessed because I have three passports. My mom is from Chile, my father's French, and so I have uh, Chile, uh, European Union, and American, which really gives me some travel options. It's really nice. Oh yeah,
0: you're pretty much set.
1: (laughs) But uh, what about you? Do you don't is Norwegians like? Are they tight to the fist and they don't give away Uh, passports very easily?
0: Yes, they just voted to allow dual citizenship. Oh, great. um, Great. Yeah. So I don't know what the requirements are yet, but I'm working towards the permanent residency. And if I get that, wait, wait, wait,
1: you don't have permanent residency yet and you're married to a fucking Norwegian?
0: (laughs) No, I have a, a family immigration visa. So you have to stay. Well, that's a whole other conversation, but you have to stay some years until you can even apply for permanent residency. So yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a process. Even if
1: you're married, let me tell you this in Donald Trump's America, even despite this, Rejoice got her permanent resident visa before she set foot in America. She had never left the African continent. And in Africa, they gave her a permanent, you know, green card, basically a permanent resident visa, boom. And so she's a permanent resident, boom, even before she came here. How did you guys meet? Now we we on the topic. (laughs) We met on an application called Badoo, which is like Tinder. Does Badoo exist in Norway?
0: I don't know. I'm not on dating applications. Dude, why are you not on dating
1: applications? Duly noted. Duly noted. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, wife, over here, we're all recording. (laughs) So, Badu is kind of like Tinder, basically. It's it's a way to to meet uh, people. And so, I just was in Cameroon, and I was just, oh, there's a cute girl, and I wrote to her, and then... We, we met, and then all of a sudden i was like, wow, I really like this chick. And so I was like, wow, let's, let's go travel together. And uh, so I decided, okay, I'm going to put her through the ringer and take her to the romantic destinations of Nigeria, Central African Republic, and Congo. And if she could survive that stuff, then she can travel easily to Paris. Or Oslo. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, if you can... So so we got along great. We did camping. We did uh, we slept outside with the mosquitoes and, and uh, under a mosquito net. The humidity and all the discomfort, you know, hard to get a shower, that kind of stuff. And she did it all very well and with a good smile and with a good attitude. And I was like, wow, we really got along great. So, hey, we should make this a long-term partnership. So there we go. That's how we met. Yeah.
0: I mean, must have been at that point also a little bit more open in some way, right? Because you kind of mentioned before being a single traveler and, you know, spending all these years doing this type of travel. Were you, I I don't want to say closed off, but were you kind of protective of your, hey, I'm going to be single and I want to just, no, kind of keep this lifestyle where you always open minded. to No, that sort of thing
1: I, like that for happened. example, when I was in Estonia, when I entered into Eastern Europe, and in fact, I write about it a little bit in the book as well. When I met this uh, girl named Mayu, and Mayu Reisman was her name, and I met her on a trip, and then I really, you know, loved her and felt you know, I really kind of enjoyed being with her. And she and I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail together. So you know, I set off. So just because I was in travel, it wasn't like I was closed off to the idea of getting into a serious relationship. In fact, I've always been attracted to non-American women. You know, anybody who's kind of foreign. Um, so uh, I remember I'm going to say a politically incorrect joke. Uh, there's there's this thing kind of like, what's the what's paradise? Paradise is. Um, an American home, a Japanese wife, uh, Italian cooking, and the, I don't know, I can't remember the other thing. Like, anyway, you, you get this thing. But the, the, I remember the the flip side, what's hell? Hell is a Japanese home, uh, you know, I don't know, German cooking, and then finally it's, uh, the punchline is the uh, American wife. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Making fun of the Americans. <laughs> right, right, right.
1: Anyway, the point is, is that, um, I, I, I never was attracted to, I shouldn't say I never was attracted to, but it's just like to me, I always liked the exotic and the, and the different for me. And so that meant, uh, meeting somebody abroad and I love speaking different languages. My mom is, uh, you know, spoke to me in Spanish all my life. I went to a French school for all my life. And so I just wanted to meet and rejoice, rejoice speaks five languages and three of them are African. She speaks English and French. And it's just I, I just enjoy the the exoticness and the, and the fun and, and and being different. That's I like I like that. And so uh, part of the reason of traveling, in in some ways, you could ar- you could argue is like looking for a perfect partner, a perfect wife, uh, somebody like that. So that's you know it took me uh, uh, about 120 countries to find her, but I did.
0: <laughs> <laughs> if you love to travel and in that way too, where you're gone for years at a time, I think it's good to be open and not close off to it really because uh they could also have the mindset of like well hey like i can't really meet anybody until i settle down but i mean i met my wife in a hostel so you know to me that was like already a pre-qualifier i'm like all right she's willing to stay in a hostel and you know share bathrooms and all that that kind of sp- says something about her character and she's traveling by herself through south-, south america okay cool you just checked a bunch of boxes already yeah <laughs> so that's uh there's that too. I Me, mean, you're going to find that thing that's in common and that's something you want to share with each other. That's a great thing. So anyway, congrats. It, this hermit mode you're in right now, I want to talk about this because you're used to being out and interacting with locals and having adventures and just being on the road. Is it hard for you to come home and compile this information and turn it into a book? Like, what do you like about that? That sounds pretty yeah. rough.
1: It does, but I love to write. I just enjoy writing. And the, the hardest thing, Jason, is just putting away the distractions. The internet is just so evil. Not evil. It's not <laughs> like I'm like, it's not that yeah. I spend a ton of time on Facebook. You know, I have these these applications that track your time on all the bullshit internet sites. Right. And Wh- Which one do at, you
0: use, out of curiosity?
1: Uh, oh, um, it's, uh, was it Rescue Time, I think it's called? Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm just but, curious, because I... Yeah, mm-hmm. that's always a good good to have some resources for people. Yeah. to check out. So,
1: but the point is that I really don't. I, I spend a lot. I you know I look at Wikipedia. And I look at uh, news stuff. I do research. You know, I, I look at academic papers. You know, I, I'm actually spending a fair amount of time doing relatively practical things. I also have a safari company, and that takes up some of my time. And and that's a, another story. And, and I'm helped. I just have too many distractions. What I really need to do. When I went to Croatia. And I was up in the northern Croatia along the coastline. I did not have internet. And I did not have internet for like 9 months and Jason those were the most productive 9 months of my life and I loved it. There was nobody in the village. I just it was winter time. It was a summer village. And nobody was there during the the off season, and so I just sat there and wrote and wrote. I would stare at my screen for twelve hours and have a smile on my face, a stupid grin on my face while I'm writing, and that's just what I like to do. So to me, it's just it's fun, like taking complex ideas and making them understandable. Uh, It's it's fun to try to summarize my experiences and put a and sprinkle a bit of humor in there. That's just, I just enjoy it. I don't know why. It just is, you know, for you, maybe you just enjoy talking with people. You enjoy the podcast and that's just a passion. People are so like, Hey dude, dude, Jason, how do you do this shit? You got to sit there and you got to do the editing and you got to like do these meetings and you got to talk to these people. I'm like, dude, and you're probably like, but I like it. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're not like to, to you, you're not suffering. And so, you know, this is great. And so it's the same way I feel about writing. And I just enjoy sitting out there and write. So I do miss the travel, definitely. And I'm eager to go out again. And I will go out again. Um, But I need to finish this book. Not so much because it's going to be a moneymaker, but mainly because it's just a way of kind of capturing those years of my life, sharing a bit of the experience, and maybe inspiring a few other people like me who want to go out there and explore Africa, for that matter, or anywhere.
0: Yeah, you mentioned kind of Cheryl Stray and... Bill Bryson doing that for certain hiking trails. And I would imagine that's one of the exciting things for you putting out these books is that you might be able to do the same kind of thing for other people to open up some of these spots.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. I hope so. I mean, I think a lot of people have phobias about Africa and that are unjustified. And I hope that when people, re- and same thing, actually, frankly, back when I wrote my book on Eastern Europe, people were like, oh, Eastern Europe, that's exotic travel there. You know, nowadays it's not so exotic, but still, there are still some people who are like, I don't know, I'm going to Belarus. Ooh. <laughs> 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 and Belarus is a bit exotic for, for Europe, it's true. But, you know, it, you're not going to get murdered there. You're probably not going to get robbed. You know, it's just like, hey, just go for yeah. it.
0: Yeah. Um, what is your relationship with technology when you're traveling?
1: Because I'm a, a bit older than the the millennials, let's say, um, I probably have a bit stronger. Uh, it's a bit easier for me to release the smartphone and to release the connection than I think people who are in the millennial generation who grew up with this stuff. Um, but I grew up in Silicon Valley. And so from the age of 12 or 13, I had a computer and I was you know, into this stuff, so it's not like super easy for me either. But uh, I do think we've and I and there's a lot been a lot of talking about this whole subject, and 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 more and more research being done about how the downside of being overconnected uh, is. And so, as much as I would, I try to encourage people to get offline apps, to go into airplane mode, to sometimes not buy a sim. Like I buy a sim when I was in Africa, I bought a sim card for every country i was going into but sometimes i wouldn't even buy a sim card if i was only going to be there for less than a week sometimes or i didn't really need it i was like "Ah." even though it's just like a dollar to buy a sim card i'm just like you know what i just want to be disconnected i don't want to buy a data plan and in africa you're really fucking disconnected because there they don't have wi-fi a lot of places um and or not even fast wi-fi i remember in eritrea for example i would go to internet cafes and i'm like how's the internet connection here? I would go to my like my fifth internet cafe and they would be like, oh, here, it's really good, really fast. I said, great. Before I pay you the money to like buy an hour's worth of time like I did in the other four internet cafes, just load cnn.com for me or just any website. And I would just sit there over their shoulder and wait for a minute to go by, two minutes to go by, and it still wouldn't load. I was like, you know what? Thank you, but (laughs) for me, my definition is not fast. Anyway, so the point is is that uh, definitely technology is... uh, it's a wonderful thing. We talked about couch surfing earlier, Jason, and you know, it's we it's, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for uh, the internet. And so, but still, I as much as possible, put down the phone, it's easy to say, I know it's hard to do, but that's to me, and turn around and look at the people around you, get, strike up a conversation. You know, you talk, Jason, about maybe renting an RV and going around Eastern Europe. Great idea, like I encourage people, any form of transportation to go around. But if you do do an RV, pick up hitchhikers, Uh, try to, if you do occasionally, like you have to park the RV, you can't park it in the middle of downtown sometimes, you know, take that bus into town and strike up conversations. I think it takes, just like smartphones are hard to put down, it's also hard to turn around and look at the people that are sitting around you when your wife or your travel partner is with you. And that's another challenge. So you have to kind of like get out of that shell, get out of that artificial bubble that you've created when you're traveling. And when you're traveling with somebody else, and to just say, you know what, I'm not going to talk to my travel partner, I'm actually going to, we're going to make an effort together, perhaps, to strike up a conversation with some random person who's who's near us. And I think that's something else that we, we should do more often.
0: Yeah. And another in, a good intention to send, right? Just bust out of the bubble. <laughs> Try to bust out of the bubble. And it can change the way you approach your day, it can change the activities you choose, it can change... The types of meals you select or places you go um, can change everything, really. It's crazy how a mindset or an intention when you're on the road can really flip your day around in a totally different way as long as you're like aware enough of like the experience you want to have and saying, okay, maybe these things aren't going the way I want. I want to meet more locals. How can I do that? Let me try some different things because you do have to make the effort for sure. Before I let you go, I want to hear about some of the up-and-coming destinations, some places that you think probably primed to explode or might explode soon. The book's called Hidden Europe, but I feel like Eastern Europe's becoming... It's still hidden. I feel like this is one of the reasons why I love this book, because you're giving a deep background on each of these countries and some of those subtleties culturally that we talked about before, as well as uh, mixing in with the humor and everything that you talked about, which you do a fantastic job of. And I'm just curious, you know, some places that you've highlighted, I'm sure might be places that become popular here in the next you know five ten years so like what is like hey get to these places sooner than later before they get ruined
1: <laughs> yeah well there's i guess dubrovnik we talked about earlier i think that's where they filmed the one of the latest star wars episodes i can't remember is episode eight they filmed it do you know about this no, I, should, or may, or I maybe, no, no, no. no. On, oh, yeah, funny. you are wearing a Star Wars shirt. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I'm confusing things. It's Game of Thrones, which I've never seen a single episode of Game of Thrones, but I think that was filmed in Dubrovnik. Am I right okay. about that?
0: I'm not sure. That sounds familiar. I haven't seen it either. Okay. I have but read I think, all the books, or, though. I
1: could, I could be right about both of those things. Maybe they were both filmed, one of the Star Wars episodes. Anyway, I'm sure somebody will chime in later. But the point is, is that Dubrovnik has gotten on the map for actually, for, for some years now, I first visited in two thousand and four, and it was still relatively unknown uh, compared to what it is now. And but Kotor, as we talked about earlier, is definitely on the on the list. Um, How do you spell that? K o t o r Kotor, Kotor. Um, and uh, Saint Petersburg. Is a classic destination that a lot of cruise ships go to, but a lot of people just don't go to because the Russian visa can be a, getting a can be a pain in the ass to get. But I love St. Petersburg. Is we're just talking about Eastern Europe now. Now, Africa. I think as they continue to develop and as they put more pavement, like Ethiopia has really kicked off uh, relatively recently. And Africa, the, the 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 place in Africa kind of shifts depending on where there's. Um, You know, conflict, like, for example, Mauritania used to be big 20, 30 years ago, but Mauritania has really suffered recently. Um, North Africa was a a big tourist destination for a long time until uh, a lot of the Islamic terrorists kind of made it undesirable for for people and a lot of the revolution that's going on in Egypt. But I would, if I were you, go to, you know, take advantage of like the Egyptian pound, for example, is so down against the dollar, against the euro and the dollar. It's such a travel bargain. People totally exaggerate the, the amount of fear. So at one point, maybe Egypt's kind of, we look at Tahir Square, Tahir Square, oh my God, there's going to be protests. And then nobody goes to Egypt. And yet, it's perfectly fine. You know, give me an example. When Norway, you guys had several shootings, right? Mass shootings, right? Well,
0: there was one big one some years
1: ago uh, right. that got... But there was other violence. What's what's it like? Was it there? Uh, they had some violence. I remember there's a couple of shootings there.
0: Not since I've been here, thankfully. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Maybe yeah. I'm
1: confusing it with some other Scandinavian country, but uh, I could be confusing it with like Sweden or something like that. But I. But anyway, I just remember there was that the big one was like on an island or some resort. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The point is, is that some people, I'm sure, it affected the tourism of Norway. And, you know, like all of a sudden people didn't go to the fjords because there was some shooting in Oslo, which, like, makes no fucking sense. Right, right, yeah. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like worlds apart.
0: Well, it's a, it's a 24-7 news cycle, and, you you know, yeah, if you're looking at the media for, like to feel secure about your traveling. You're not going to get it there.
1: (laughs) I mean, like another perfect example is like people didn't go to fucking South Africa because there was Ebola going on in West Africa, but they were happy to go to Southern Spain, which is a lot closer to the Ebola outbreak than South Africa. (laughs) It's like, they like blacklist the whole continent because there's an Ebola outbreak for a few hundred people or a few thousand people at that point, you know, and and you blacklist it. Just really, let's put our thinking caps on. And this is again going back to the anecdotal evidence versus statistical evidence, uh, data points, right? And anecdotal evidence is like, I heard somebody got robbed in Egypt, so therefore I'm not going to go there because there's a bunch of fucking thieves in Egypt or whatever. And and and. And we got to look at statistics. What's the realistic chances? How many thousands of tourists go to Egypt, and how many of them actually get stuck on a bus that gets hijacked or gets shot up in the Sinai? You know, very few. So, well, anyway, I'm sure you have
0: personal examples with some countries you visited that might get bad press, but then you found tremendous hospitality.
1: Perfect Sudan, impact. perfect example. Sudan. Dude, one of the things that was tough about Africa sometimes is that Africans, you know, they're poor, largely, largely poor. And they're constantly begging and asking, asking, asking. It's exhausting. You know, pay for this. Help me do this. Uh, give me this. Give me, that, give me that. And But when in Sudan, out of all the 54 African countries, never did I feel so many people ran into so many people who said, no, I will pay for this drink for you. No, I'm going to, you know, give you this meal. No, don't pay for me, you know, you know, whatever. Just simple things like that. It's like, wow, I remember one guy even paid for like a uh, like a ticket on the bus. She's like, no. So it's just like that was, but what do you hear about Sudan? You hear about the, the, the Darfur. You hear about the protests on the street. And well, granted, right now as we're recording this, there have been some protests. But I went there just last year when and i was traveling through darfur i was traveling through um all over sudan and it was magnificent magnificent not so much darfur uh, because I, I did have military escort there but but from like northern sudan where i have seeing all the pyramids that they have it's and and just meeting the people my god what a disconnect what a disconnect between what we hear about in the news and the experience on the ground so really uh just you, you got to drum that into your your listeners encourage them to stretch a little bit beyond their comfort zone go to places that that seem a little bit off the beaten path and a little bit scary just fucking go for it and and you're not going and probably you're going to ask yourself huh i lived i survived in fact i had a great time maybe i should repeat that and go to someplace else and you're going to love it it's going to, you're going to love it
0: and this is a good uh reminder that you're going to have to tune in for part two when this this book comes out because <laughs> yes. I mean, we have a whole continent to cover here yeah. with Africa and a continent yeah. worth of stories. So um, would you be willing to come back on and share some of those stories when when that book drops after you've sort of coalesced all that information yes. and uh, put it down?
1: Yes, and the publisher, is, is the, the, my agent, is really begging me to keep the length down and I'm like, but dude, I went to 25 Eastern European countries and I wrote 750 pages. And now I went to twice as many African countries. And you want me to make it half the length? Dude. <laughs> That's gonna, That's be, gonna hard. be hard. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. It's it's heartbreaking. It's like, it's really tough when you have some fascinating experiences and you just can't write about it. And you're like, no, it's not fascinating enough. Like, okay, it's a high bar. So, uh, well, you, know, you always have the good.
0: blog, I guess. And uh, do you want to just yeah. share where everybody can find yeah. stuff in case I missed anything?
1: Sure. Uh, one, if you want to go learn about the Africa 50, you can go to Africa54.com and that will take you right to my the Unseen Africa page. Um, if you want to listen to my new podcast, which is called Wander Learn, just go to wanderlearn.com and then, and then. Yeah, that's good enough. I guess you can yeah, if you somehow remember my name, Francis Tapon, then you can go to go to that. So, oh, here's the last thing I'll, I'll mention. Uh, all my social medias f as in Francis and tapon. Just think of tampon without the m. So, t a p o n. And so f tapon is my username everywhere. You can go to ftapon.com. It's just the easiest way. So, whatever your thing is, you follow me there or, or connect with me there thanks
0: great, well, thanks for taking the time, and yeah, I look forward to finishing the book that I already got from you hidden Europe, so I can figure out where i'm going to go. obviously, kotor is already on that list, and uh then we'll circle back and here get get the get the bucket list going for Africa i guess St Petersburg
1: uh, have you got that on the list too
0: yeah I, I put that on the list as well, yeah, okay, my okay, list okay, just okay. Hosting this podcast is causing me (laughs) to create some kind of list that I don't even know how I'm going to finish it one day, but I guess I'll find a way. Francis, man, thank you so much. Uh, It was a pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to connect. Yeah, look forward to chatting with you again. Thanks so much.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Jason. All right, take Take care. care.
0: Bye. There you have it, my chat with Francis, and he's been all over. The dude's been everywhere. And uh, like I said at the top, I think it's a very cool thing to spend such quality time in one concentrated area. I mean, you could say Eastern Europe is not super concentrated. It's pretty spread out. But you still get to explore multiple countries. You get to go deep and learn things that you would never learn if you were just passing through. One of the many benefits of slow travel, and maybe slow travel is something to consider to lessen our impact to do more regional slow travel where we go so we can eliminate those multiple long-haul flights. Something to think about. Thanks for taking time to hang out and listen to this show, be a part of this community. If you want to stay in touch further, you should go to zerototravel.com and sign up for our email list. I send out an email mostly every week, and there are some helpful links there. I keep you updated on recent podcasts. And just share stuff that I think is useful, interesting, fun. So you can sign up over there. And we do occasional workshops and live events online and in person. So if you don't want to miss those, you want to meet other people in this community or you want to hang out with me, I always love to meet people that are part of this community. So that's how you can find out about that stuff by hopping on the email list. So if you haven't done that, just head over to zerototravel.com and sign up over there. And you'll hear about some exciting other stuff yet to be announced coming up here Stuff off the podcast that you can't get here. Anyway, thank you for being here. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Sadhguru Jaggi Vasudev. Probably not pronouncing that name correctly, so forgive me, Sadhguru. He says, in turning inward, life opens up dimensions and possibilities unknown. There you have it. A little food for thought at the end of the show. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next week. Have a wonderful day. Smile. Take a chance today. Go buy a stranger a coffee. Maybe turn your phone off and leave it at home for a day. I don't know. Do something different because it's fun. Because it's life and we only get one. So it's always fun to experiment with your days. Have fun with it. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. Cheers.
1: This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.